Well, it's great to be together in this evening's service. Let's be turning our Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 uh, this evening. Appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Appreciate anyone who may be uh, studying with us uh, from their homes. We're grateful for your uh, interest, uh, certainly as well, your your dedication to the Lord. Appreciate uh, such a... Um, Fine job that Andrew does uh, any time that we call upon him here. We appreciate that. We're very excited. On, on one hand, we're very excited about uh, he and Kayla's future. On the other hand, we won't talk about it. So, I'm very excited to see Brenna. Uh, just cheers our heart uh, to see Brenna at home for however long she can be here. And we're excited about all the great things that she and Hunter are doing as well. Isaiah 53, just noticing a few things about our Lord. Uh, great prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah 53. It's interesting that the very uh, name Isaiah uh, is a reference to salvation in God. Uh, the salvation of Jehovah is really the ideal of Isaiah's uh, name. It's always interesting to see how these Bible names reflect uh, the goodness of God. Seven centuries before Christ, uh, Isaiah prophesies about him. Isaiah has a tough time to live in. If we think we have it tough, he had a very tough time. Uh, His own people were being carried away into captivity. During his time, the northern kingdom of Israel will suffer affliction from uh, the nation of Assyria. Later, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah will undergo similar suffering uh, from the nation of Babylon. Both Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and others in their time had to, um, had to speak about the sins that were bringing this destruction upon their people. But from that, um, we have these bursts of joy. Uh, times that he speaks about the glories of the time of Christ. And Isaiah 53 is one of these situations, one of these passages. And we know it very well, so let's get started. Uh, three or four great ideas about Jesus. Isaiah 53 speaks to us about the Jesus of prophecy. The Jesus of prophecy. First of all, the Jesus of prophecy. Several examples just here from Isaiah 53 and the first few verses. Isaiah 53 verse 1 is uh, also made reference to in John chapter 12, 37 and 38, where it says, uh, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, that is something that is mentioned in John 12, 37 and 38. When you look at Isaiah 53 and you speak of Jesus being a man of sorrows, you read several times how that Jesus indeed uh, was a man of sorrow. He, he, he shed tears. John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Uh, Luke nineteen forty one, Jesus uh, cries over the city of Jerusalem. Hebrews 5 In verse 7 as well, Jesus is seen crying, strong crying. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 talks about Jesus bearing our griefs and our sorrows. This is a reference found in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17. Uh, Time when Jesus is is healing people. He healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He cast out some demons and then he healed more sick people And then Matthew records how this is a fulfillment of how that Jesus would bear people's uh, infirmities. They would bear uh, their sicknesses. 
It's Isaiah 53, verse 4. In Isaiah 53, in verse 5, we read how that through his stripes we're going to be healed. Through his wounds we'll be healed. And Peter makes reference to this in 1 Peter 2, and verse 24. In Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, it talks about how that Jesus would be led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is dumb, so Jesus would not open up his mouth. And in his humiliation, his judgment would be taken away. In other words, of, of that uh, type. Well, this is found among other places in Acts chapter 8, 32 and 33. This is the passage that the eunuch is reading when Philip uh, joins him. And uh, Philip asks him, do you understand what you read? And... Um, the eunuch says, how can I accept some man should guide me? So they started right there, Acts 8 and, and 35, and he preached unto him Jesus from that spot onward. And it wasn't long as they were traveling along that uh, the eunuch said, here is water. What does hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, if you believe, then you may. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. How did he come to that, uh, how did he come to that uh, belief? Well, through reading of Isaiah 53 and onward and explaining how this is application to only one person, Jesus Christ. And so they both went down into the water and Philip baptized him and then the unit went on his way uh, rejoicing. So, so notice how the Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 connects to Acts 8, 32 and 33. And one other here in Isaiah 53, verse 9, speaks how that in Jesus' death, uh, his grave would be uh, put in place with wicked and also his grave would be uh, put in place with a rich man. And we know who that rich man uh, is and was. Uh, Matthew 27, 57 through 60 talks about Joseph of Arimathea coming along and um, offering his tomb uh, for the body of Jesus. And so notice how Jesus is the Jesus of prophecy. And what does this mean for us? Well, two or three things at least. We can be sure about the Word of God. It gives us assurance concerning the Word of God. The Word of God is good. It's good. And it's profitable for us. Over in Romans four seventeen, I'd like for you to notice a little statement there. At the end of that verse, Romans four seventeen, concerning God, it says, He calls those things which are not as though they were. God calls things which are not as though they were. Talk about how God is able to look into the future and say things that have not yet happened as if they were already past tense. Notice how that happens in Isaiah 53, saying, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, as if it's already happened, though it's in the future. So God calls things that are not as if they already were. Only one person can do that. That's God. And so therefore there's only one book that belongs to God. And that is the Bible because of the fulfillment of prophecy. Another thing we get from this idea of Jesus and prophecy. Is that there's only one man who fits prophecy. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Only one man who fits the profile that emerges from all these prophecies. Not just in Isaiah 53 but also in the book of Isaiah, not just in the book of Isaiah, but throughout the Old Testament, whether you're talking about the Lamb of God or whether you're talking about the seed of woman, no matter what you're talking about, you're talking about 
one man, and that's Jesus Christ. He says in John 14, 3, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except uh, through me. And then we also take from this that God is managing the affairs of life on earth uh, to suit his purposes. That's very important for us to keep in mind. God both has the ability and he has the desire and it is within his realm of possibility that he controls the events on the earth in such a way that it fulfills what he thinks is best. And that's part of our, of our faith. It's part of our trust. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, We trust in the Lord with all our hearts and we lean not on our own understanding. Sometimes as things happen in the world, we're not sure why, we're not sure where all this is going, but we can be sure of this. God has a purpose. God has a will. And many times we must simply do our best, pray hard, serve with all our heart, but then there's, a, there's that point where we just simply, Lord, we're going to trust in you because you know what is best And so we see here from Isaiah 53, the Jesus of prophecy. In the second place, let's see the power of Jesus from Isaiah 53. Let's see the power of Jesus. Verse 1 speaks of the power of Jesus. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been uh, revealed? The arm of the Lord referring referring here to the power of Jesus. Okay. And there in John 12, we mentioned a moment ago, this is seen again. It's brought up again in John 12, 37 and 38. And in this vein, okay, during the life of Jesus, this comment is made. Though he did many signs before them, John 12, 37, yet they did not believe in him. And then John brings up this very passage from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? Well, they would not believe the message because they did not believe in Jesus, even in spite of the many miracles and wonders and signs he was doing in their presence. This is one of the purposes of Jesus' miracles. According to John, John 20, 30, and 31, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. But it's amazing, first, it's amazing to just observe, witness, and read about all the wonderful miracles of Jesus. The walking on the water, the turning water into wine, the calming of the storm, the resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, the, the healing of the sick, the casting out. Uh, the demons, we just go on and on. It's amazing just to think about the miracles of Jesus, but then it's also amazing to see how people refuse to believe in the very face of and in the very presence of those miracles. And that's really what is being brought out here from Isaiah 53 and the fulfillment there in John, John 12. Think about some examples of this. Think about John 18, 10 and 11. We were studying Wednesday night together how that Peter took his sword, he cut off the servant's ear, the right ear of the servant, one of the soldiers who was coming to arrest Jesus in the garden. The the soldier's name was Malchus. And Peter swung and cut off his ear. And Jesus, Jesus just took that ear and placed it right back on his head. 
Just an outright miracle. After that miracle was done, the, the whole band of soldiers that, that came to arrest Jesus should have all gone home. That should have been enough for them to say, this is beyond us. What are we doing arresting this man? But in spite of that miracle, still they took him uh, and, and arrested him. They just would not uh, believe. In John chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus had just healed a man who had been who had some sort of infirmity and made him an invalid. And this had been happening for 38 years. And Jesus uh, had the man take up his bed and walk. It was on the Sabbath day. And some of the Jews come, come according to John 5 and verse 10, and said uh, to the man who had just been healed, they come to the man and they say, It is the Sabbath day. What are you doing taking up your bed and walking on the Sabbath day? Okay. Who told you to take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath day? And of course, the man referred him to Jesus who had just healed him. But notice the unbelief there. Not, we're so happy to see that you have been healed. We're so happy to see that you're now able to walk and take up your bed and walk. No, in unbelief they say, what are you doing taking up this bed on the Sabbath day? Who is it that told you uh, to do this unbelief in spite of miracles uh, unbelief notice in John chapter 12 right after the resurrection of Lazarus Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were together in a home and having a meal together and a large crowd started coming uh, toward them uh, Number one, because of Jesus. And number two, because they wanted to see Lazarus who had just been brought back from the dead. And the Jews then started trying to think of ways to put Lazarus to death. Can you believe it? To put Lazarus to death. Because many of the Jews were going away from these hard-hearted Jews and beginning to believe in Jesus. Look at that. Right in the face of an outright miracle, there is someone not believing. Matthew 12, 24, Jesus uh, cast out a demon. The man who had the demon could not uh, see or speak. When Jesus cast out the demon, the man came. He could both now uh, see and speak. He was, he was dumb and mute. Now he, can, he, he comes. He, he's in his right mind. Okay. But the Jews say, this man uh, cast out demons uh, by Beelzebub. The prince of the demons. That's the only way he can cast them out. Okay. And so it's, it's, it's a marvel to see unbelief in the face of the miracles. And that's one thing that Isaiah 53 is definitely bringing out. Now for us, let's think about hardness of heart. This bespeaks of hardness of heart, no doubt about it. Think about this. What are some, uh, what are some metaphors? What are some... Figures of speech in the New Testament that has to do with hardness of heart. Well, uh, Matthew thirteen fifteen, Jesus talks about how that some close their eyes. Okay, their eyes are closed. Um, they do not hear with their ears, and their heart has waxed gross, or their heart, their heart has become very dull, very dull. Uh, these are all ways of saying a hard heart. Okay, they close their eyes. I always try to begin a prayer by a quotation from Psalm 119.18 where the prayer is Psalm, uh, Psalm, 119, Psalm 119 verse 18. But the prayer is, Lord, open my eyes 
that I may see wondrous things out of your law. We're not going to see what we need to see from Scripture unless we have our, our heart open. Okay. So notice those figures of speech. And then if you turn over to Acts 7 in um, Stephen's sermon, you see as he looked to some of the Jewish people, he said to them, they were stiff-necked. They were stiff-necked. That's another way of saying a hard heart. They were stiff-necked. When you have a stiff neck, you can't, it's hard to look either way. And they had become this way spiritually. They just simply would not look at any other evidence for Jesus other than what had been shown by their own group. They refused to look at any other way. They, they refused to have an open heart. They were stiff-necked. But they also were uncircumcised both in heart and ears. Okay. Circumcision brings to us the idea of cutting of cutting. And instead of being cut to the heart, instead of having open ears, instead of being cut to the heart, they were hard they had a hardness of heart. Okay. By the way, you remember as Peter preaches in Acts two, verse thirty six, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly assuredly that this Jesus whom you crucified God has made both Lord and Christ. And then it says in verse thirty seven, the people who heard him were cut to the heart and asked, what shall we do? They were were pricked in the heart. They were cut to the heart. When we are properly cut to the heart by the word of God, we will ask, Lord, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? And so we see that uh, Stephen illustrates the hardness of heart there. Well, let's ask ourselves this also before we leave this idea. What can I do to make sure that a hardness of heart doesn't settle in on me? Well, you would have many appropriate responses to this, but let's think of two or three things. First, we can, we can open up our Bible and read it. There's, there's no document, there's no series of documents that will so work on our heart like the Word of God. The more we read the Bible, then the more our heart will be in tune with the things which are most important. Okay. Brother Gus Nichols years ago used to say that you can tell when a man stops reading the Bible. You can, you can tell it by the way he speaks. You can tell it by the way he acts, even by the way he carries himself. Okay. There's nothing that will work on a heart like the Word of God. So to keep a soft heart, an open heart, Let's get into the Word and stay in the Word. But also another thing we can do is to have a curious heart. You know, in Matthew 13, 15, Jesus says your, your heart has waxed gross. It's become dull. It's become dull. It has no curiosity. It has no thirst for righteousness. No, no thirst for answers about eternity and about the soul. So we need to keep that thirst before us. And that will help us always to have an open heart. And then the third thing we can do is let the Bible speak for itself. We need to keep human opinions and human ideas away from religion. Let the Word of God speak for itself. 1 Peter 4, 11, 10 and 11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as it were the oracles of God. Let the Bible speak and let it, let it explain itself. It is, God is so good at explaining what he has in mind to us if we'll just let him do that. A fourth thing that we can do to keep an open heart is to keep 
the same focus group as God has. God has one focus group, and that is found in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. God would have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. That's God's focus group. If we will keep God's focus group as our focus group, then our hearts will be where they need to be. Any time that we become out of sorts with someone or out of sorts with God or out of sorts with what's going on, it's always good to go back to the Lord and see what His focus is. And He has but one focus, that all men will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So notice from Isaiah 53, first, the Christ of prophecy, and then notice, secondly, the Jesus of power, and how even though in the face of real power, uh, they many would not believe in him. The third ideal from Isaiah 53 this evening is to notice the rejected Jesus. Notice Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected of men. Don't jump past that word despise. We won't take the time there. But the idea behind that word is they considered Jesus to be absolutely worthless. Worthless. If you look over to Luke 23, verse 11, they treated him with contempt. That means they treated him like, almost like an animal. Like a plaything. Just worthless. Uh, Something to be brought in for our entertainment and then cast away with contempt. And you see there, they mocked him. You know, they put that robe around him. They put that thorn of crowns on him. They bowed down. They hit him on the head with the reed and all these types of things. He was despised. He was despised. He was mocked. He was rejected of men. This idea of the rejection of Jesus is a huge theme throughout Old and New Testament. And I know as bad as you hate it, we're not going to talk about this theme uh, from the Old and New Testament uh, completely uh, this evening. It would take a considerable amount of time. But we'll focus down to just one passage, John 1, 10 through 12. John 1, you'll want to notice this, John 1, 10 through 12. Concerning Jesus, it says... John 1, 10 through 12, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and the world knew him not. And then verse 11 follows up on that. He came unto his own and his own received him not. A clear rejection of Jesus. Jesus had a huge part in creating this world. He created the world. Colossians 1 16 and 17 says, Jesus was, is before all things, through him all things are created, and in, in him all things consist. Hebrews 1.3 says that the universe is held up by the word of his power. And Jesus created this world, then he came into this world, he came into his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But now look at verse 12, John 1 verse 12. But those who did receive him and believed on his name, they were given the right to become the children of God. Now this is a powerful passage. Let me just spend a little time right here. John 1 verse 12. Okay. On the very heels of the rejection of Jesus. 
Some of our religious friends love to camp on John 1.12 and say, all you've got to do is believe on Jesus and receive him into your heart, and then you're a child of God. This is not what this passage is saying at all. Notice it carefully with me. Those who receive Jesus and believe on his name are those who accept the full authority of Jesus. Okay. That when you read about the name of Jesus, most often it's referring to his authority. Okay. Similar to what Paul says in Colossians 3 and 17. And whatever you do, Paul says, Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto his name. So those who receive Jesus and believe on his name are those who have accepted his full authority over all things religious. Okay. Now, those who do that are given the right to become a child of God. They don't automatically become a child of God, but it empowers them to become a child of God. It puts them in the best position to become a child of God. Right? When I played basketball, there, there's a position known as the triple threat. Okay? Not just because I played basketball, but because it is basketball. There's a position called triple threat. And that's the position of having the basketball in your hand. And you haven't dribbled yet. Okay? And you're close enough to the goal where you could shoot or you could pass. It's a triple threat position. You could, because you've not yet dribbled, you could dribble right by your man and go in and score. Or you could pass to another fellow on your team and he could go in and score. Or you could stand right from where you're at and you could shoot the ball and score. You're in a triple threat position. You're, you're in a position where you could score. You haven't scored, okay, but you're in a very good position to do so. This is the exact ideal here in John 1 verse 12. Those who receive Jesus and believe on his name, you accept his full authority in all things, that puts us in the perfect position then now to become a child of God. And notice in, in, in John 1 13 that the writer goes on to say, being born of God, you see. Being born of God. He goes right from the idea of having the right to become a child of God to being born of God. Now notice, he first says in a negative way, we're not born of God, not, not by the blood of men, and not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of men, but by the will of God. In other words, we're not going to become a child of God through, um, through blood relations. Through, through family connections. We're not going to become a child of God. We're not going to become a child of God uh, by uh, our own desires, the will of the flesh. Okay? It is not within us to create a way for us to become a child of God. We're not going to become a child of God by the will of men. We don't go to the teachings and commandments of men to learn how to become a child of God. But rather, the only way to become a child of God is to listen to and learn about the will of God and then submit to that. Right. Uh, Peter picks up on this theme in 1 Peter 1, uh, 22 and following when he said, seeing then that you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth through the unfeigned love of the brethren, let us love one another with a pure heart fervently. 
being born again, he said. Not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God which endures forever. All flesh is as grass, and the glory thereof, like the flower of the grass, well, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So it is through learning and submitting to the word of God that we learn to become a child of God. And we all understand that the Bible speaks pretty clearly about how to become a child of God. Jesus said, whoever is born of water and the Spirit, John 3, verse 5, then that person becomes a, a part of the kingdom of God or the family of God. Okay. Or as uh, Paul says in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, we are all the children of God by the faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of us as were baptized into Christ, into Christ, did put on Christ. And so even in the midst of talking about the, resur- the uh, rejection of Jesus, we see that there's this fabulous teaching here about becoming a child of God. Jesus was rejected, but that did not keep the possibility of becoming a member of his family from happening. So we see the Jesus of prophecy, the Jesus of power, and also the Jesus who was rejected. And then one other thought about Jesus this evening from Isaiah 53. It says, He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Again, we could speak of this for a very long time. Jesus did shed tears. And those tears, they were for us. Of course, we see him reaching out to people like in John eleven thirty five, as he went to console and to help Mary and Martha in the death of, of Lazarus. It says Jesus simply wept with them. But we're also uh, interested in the fact that Jesus cried aloud in Luke 19.41. Looking upon the, the corruption of the city of Jerusalem, all the hypocrisy that was there, all the hardness of heart that was there, it just caused him to cry out loud and shed some tears. Then we read in Hebrews 5 and verse 7. That Jesus in the days of his flesh, he offered prayer and supplication supplication unto God with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. But of course, they would not choose to save Jesus from death. This refers to the intense agony and suffering that he offered in our behalf. Jesus, indeed, is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He teaches us a lot through these ideals, but it all comes back to what he did for us there on the cross. I was going through some of the VBS past materials, past visual aids that people here at Midway have I've been upstairs and went through some of that. Brother and Sister Peebles, a few years ago, made us a real crown of thorns. And we used it at VBS one year to, to illustrate the pain that Jesus endured, the mocking 
that he endured. I got that thing out. I took it with me down to the other midway where over the weekend I've been doing some preaching for them. I got that thing out and showed it to them to bring out again just how much the Lord suffered in our behalf. We can be reminded of that as well. Isaiah 53, wonderful prophecy of our Lord. So much to learn. But perhaps these few thoughts together this evening can inspire us once again to have greater faith in the one who loves us. And to show that faith by doing as many good works as we can and sharing our faith with those around us. It may be that you this evening, you're ready to take advantage, to make the connection to, to submit to the will of God so that you can enjoy the blessings and the work that Jesus did while on earth and in enduring that cross. You can once again enjoy the hope that is found in Christ. It can be real. So this evening as we are about to sing together, if there's any spiritual need you may have, please make that known right now as we stand together and as we sing.